Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, this is Daphne, and I am here to read you the Cape Cod Times for Thursday, November the 2nd. We begin with the weather. Today, high of 47 with plenty of sun. Tonight, low of 38, partly cloudy. Friday, a high of 58 and a low of 50, mostly sunny and milder. Saturday, nice with clouds and sun, high of 60, low of 48. Sunday, clouds and sunshine, high of 60, low of 47. And Monday, nice with times of clouds and sun, high of 61, low of 51. And in terms of daylight, today the sun rose at 714 and will set at 535, giving us 10 hours and 21 minutes of daylight. And we move to the lottery. For the numbers game drawn yesterday, November the 1st, the midday drawing, the numbers are 0, 3, 8, and 2. Again, for midday drawing, 0, 3, 8, 2. And for the evening drawing of the numbers games, the numbers are 9, 0, 2, 9. Again, 9, 0, 2, 9. For mass cash drawn yesterday, November the 1st, the numbers are 9, 28, 29, 31, and 32. Again, mass cash, 9, 28, 29, 31, and 32. For Powerball, also drawn yesterday, the November the 1st, the numbers are 22, 26, 39, 47, 63, and the Powerball is 12. Again, for Powerball, 22, 26, 39, 47, 63, with the Powerball of 12. For Mega Millions, drawn on Tuesday, October the 31st, the numbers are 14, 35, 37, 55, 70, with the Mega Ball of 15. Again, Mega Millions, drawn on Tuesday, the numbers are 14, 35, 37, 55, 70, and 15 as the Mega Ball. For Mega Bucks Doubler, drawn yesterday, November the 1st, the numbers are 8, 17, 29, 30, 41, 44, and 5 is the Doubler. Again, Mega Bucks Doubler, drawn yesterday, the numbers are 8, 17, 29, 30, 41, 44, with five as the doubler. And finally, Lucky for Life, drawn yesterday, the numbers are 16, 18, 32, 36, 47, with a lucky ball 
of 14. Again, the lucky ball drawn yesterday, lucky for life, excuse me, the drawn yesterday, the numbers are 16, 18, 32, 36, 47, with the lucky ball of 14. And on for the news from the Cape Cod Times on Thursday, November the 2nd. Our headline story is Judges Rule Land Stays with Mashpee Tribe, and this is reported by Rachel Devaney for the Cape Cod Times. In an appeal released Tuesday, the U.S. First Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston ruled that the U.S. Department of the Interior can hold two parcels of land in Taunton and Mashpee in trust for the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. The decision has been a long time coming, said Brian Whedon, chairman of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. Quote, the priority has and always will be about the land, he said Wednesday by phone. While we celebrate this victory, we must be mindful of the battles to come as we continue to work on land back initiatives with the Commonwealth, federal government, and other organizations. Close quote. The 35-page decision was written by a panel of three judges, Judge Laura Montecalvo, Judge Sandra Lynch, and Judge Julie Rickleman. David and Michelle Littlefield and 22 others were appealing a 2021 U.S. District Court decision that asserted that the Department of the Interior Bureau of Indian Affairs could hold 321 acres in trust for the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. Throughout the case, the appellants made the claim that the tribe didn't fit the federal definition of Indian under the 1934 Indian Reorganization Act. According to federal guidelines, a tribe needs to be defined as Indians in order to qualify to hold the land in trust, according to the decision. The decision, said Heather Gibson, an attorney for the tribe, was well written. Quote, this is an important decision for all federally recognized tribes, she said by phone on Wednesday. The appellants in the case can move forward with what's called an unbanked appeal, said Sibison, where they can try to convince judges within the First Circuit Court of Appeals that Montecavo, Lynch, and Rickleman got it wrong, or they can petition to the U.S. Supreme Court for review. Quote, the little fields can try to get an appeal, and they might, but both options are discretionary, she said. It's not like when they lost in district court and they had a right to appeal to the circuit court. For the Department of the Interior to authorize land into trust and create a reservation for the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe, it must comply with the Indian Reorganization Act, said Sibison. There are three definitions of the word Indian associated with the Indian Reorganization Act, she said. The definition of Indian under the Indian Res Reorganization Act is, quote, one, all persons of Indian descent who are members of any recognized Indian tribe now under federal jurisdiction, and two, all persons who are descendants of such members who were, on June the 1st, 1934, 
residing within the present boundaries of any Indian reservation and shall further include three, all other persons of one half or more Indian blood, according to the department. After the Department of Interior under the Obama administration put the land into trust for the tribe in 2015, the Littlefields challenged the way the Department of the Interior defined the word Indian in reference to the Mashpee Wampanoag trial. There were court decisions in 2015, 2018, and 2021, said Sibison. While the court sided with the tribe in 2015 and 2021, in 2018, the Trump administration rejected the Department of the Interior's interpretation of the word Indian. Quote, then we sued here in D.C. and the court agreed with the tribe and ordered the Department of Interior to do it again, she said. The decision was vacated by the U.S. District Court in the District of Columbia, which found it to be unlawful and turned the matter to the agency. The U.S. District Court ruled that the tribe satisfied the federal definition of Indian as required to qualify the tribe for trust lands. And on February the 10th, Judge Angel Kelly issued a 31-page decision affirming a December 2021 decision by the Secretary of the Interior to confirm the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe's right to the reservation land. Sibison has been fighting in court on behalf of the tribe since roughly 2015, she said. While the victory of the most recent court case is sweet, she said, justice has been delayed for far too long. It's gratifying, she said, to see both the Department of the Interior and the courts properly applying the law. Quote, These delays have interfered with the tribe's ability to provide housing, language instruction, and language-specific education, she said. This has done a lot of damage for people who have already suffered a lot of damage. Close quote. Also from Front Page News, First foreigners, injured Gaza Strip residents, allowed to leave. Palestinian-Israeli death toll tops 10,000, reported by John Bacon for the USA Today. Egypt began allowing foreign passport holders and some wounded citizens trapped in the Gaza Strip to flee through the Rafah crossing Wednesday, as the humanitarian crisis intensified and the war's combined death toll reported by Palestinian and Israeli authorities climbed above 10,000. Palestinian authorities said more than 400 foreign passport holders would be leaving Gaza on Wednesday. Egypt has refused to accept Palestinian refugees amid concerns Israel might not allow them to return after the war. More than 2 million Palestinians remain trapped in Gaza, while Israel has bombed the territory relentlessly since the brutal attacks of Hamas militants on Israeli border communities October the 7th. Quote, the situation in shelters remains critical, with very limited assistance available and no additional space to accommodate the increasing number of internally displaced people. The UN Relief and Works Agency for Tal Palestinian Refugees said in a statement. The UNRWA said more than 670,000 Palestinians living in about 150 UNWRA shelters across Gaza 
are, quote, facing deteriorating humanitarian conditions and health and protection risks, close quote. Now, Israeli soldiers are pouring into Gaza as the ground invasion drives more Palestinians from their homes. Quote, the eyes of the whole world are looking at us, Israeli Brigadier General Itzik Cohen told ground troops entering Gaza. Quote, the people of Israel trust us and stand behind us, close quote. More than 1,400 Israelis have died, most of them civilians killed in the first hours of the Hamas rampage, Israeli authorities say. The U.S. State Department says 33 Americans have been killed. About 240 people have take, been, were taken hostage, five of whom have since g- gained their freedom. The Palestinian death toll has reached 8,525, according to the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza. In the Israeli-occupied West Bank, more than 122 Palestinians have been killed, authorities there say. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will travel to the Middle East for the second time in three weeks Friday, initially meeting with the Israeli officials before visiting other nations in the region, the State Department said. There have been 27 rocket and drone attacks on U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria, according to the Pentagon, which says it's sending 300 more troops to the Middle East with specialization in explosive ordnance disposal and communications. The Israel-Hamas war could have major implications for Americans, possibly inspiring extremists to try to attack the U.S. and other Western nations, FBI Director Christopher Wray told a Senate committee on Tuesday. Wray said there has been an increase in call for such action from foreign groups in recent weeks, as the U.S. has staunchly stood behind Israel and added that the number of threats figures to grow if the war expands. Quote, we assess that the actions of Hamas and its allies will serve as an inspiration the likes of which we haven't seen since ISIS launched its so-called caliphate, wo- caliphate years ago, Ray said. The FBI isn't currently tracking an organized threat in the U.S., but law enforcement is concerned the war could motivate individuals or small groups to attack Americans in their daily lives, he said. Ray also pointed out Jewish people make up only 2.4% of the U.S. population, but are the targets of 60% of the religion-based hate crimes, which he called jarring. Quote, this is a threat that is reaching in some ways short, sort of historic levels. Ray said. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is developing a national strategy to combat Islamophobia amid skepticism from many Muslim Americans, the Associated Press reported, citing people briefed on the matter. AP said the White House originally was expected to announce plans to develop the strategy last week, but was delayed partly due to concerns from Muslim Americans that the administration lacked credibility given its support of Israel's military. The launch has been anticipated since the administration in May released a national strategy to combat 
anti-Semitism that made passing reference to countering hatred um, against Muslims. Israeli airstrikes hit an apartment building, apartment buildings in the Yabalia refugee camp, a Hamas stronghold near Gaza City, for a second day Wednesday, causing an undetermined number of deaths and injuries, the Hamas-run government said. The Israeli military said it had significantly expanded ground operations in the area. The attack came a day after a flurry of Israeli airstrikes Tuesday on the largest refugee camp in Gaza called do caused dozens of casualties, flattened apartment buildings, and killed what the Israeli military said was a Hamas commander and numerous militants who had established headquarters in the camp. The buildings tumbled when Hamas tunnels beneath them collapsed, Israel Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari said at a press briefing Wednesday. Quote, these once again demonstrate how murderous terrorists use civilians as a human shield, civilians whom we have called upon to evacuate for their own safety, Hagari said. Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates each issued statements condemning Israel's airstrikes on the Jabalia refugee camp, noting the dangerous and escalating conditions in Gaza. Najib Makata, leading Lebanon's paralyzed government, called Wednesday for a five-day ceasefire for humanitarian purposes, as Hezbollah and Israeli troops continue to clash along Lebanon's border. Makati, struggling to keep the war from expanding into his country, said the pause would accommodate prisoner exchanges and allow for talks aimed at ending the fighting. The decision to go to war today is in Israel's hands, Mikata said. Israel said Wednesday that its military had intercepted a surface-to-air missile launched from Lebanese territory toward an Israeli drone. And our last front-page article from the Cape Cod Times is entitled, Examiner, Man's Death Caused by Wounds to Neck and Head. An official testifies in the trial of Eli Perry, reported by Walker Armstrong for the Cape Cod Times. Eli Perry, who is charged with killing his father, Raymond Perry, in 2017 and burying the body off Cape, testified in his defense Wednesday morning in Barnstable Superior Court as the jury trial continued. Eli Perry faces charges ranging from intentional murder to assault and battery with a dangerous weapon to improper disposal of a body. Raymond Perry had wounds to the back of his head and knife cuts to his neck shortly before he died from his injuries, a medical examiner who worked for the state office of the chief medical examiner in 2017 told the jury on Tuesday. A substantial amount of force would have, would have been applied for the wounds on Perry's, Raymond Perry's neck to have been made. Alexandra Hart, who now works as the associate chief medical examiner for Erie County in Buffalo, New York, said to the jury, that amount of force would be needed 
to, quote, completely cut through these fairly larger muscles on the front of the neck and to go down as far as the level of the vein, close quote, Hart said, referring to incision marks that were found on the jugular vein. Perry also had head injuries from blunt force trauma, with, which Hart said was, quote, wounds such as this wouldn't immediately, instantaneously have caused death or loss of consciousness, close quote. And uh, Hart said those injuries were determined to be the cause of death, coupled with incised wounds of the neck. Raymond Perry would have been alive while initially sustaining his injuries, Hart said. Quote, Wounds such as this wouldn't immediately, instantaneously have caused death or loss of consciousness, Hart said. There would have been some gradually hemorrhaging, some gradual bleeding that would have occurred prior to death, close quote. Eli Perry, the son, killed Raymond Perry following an argument about Raymond Perry's property. But the killing was unintentional, according to opening statements on October the 18th by defense attorney Eduardo Masferrer. Eli Perry and his then-girlfriend, Paige Malone, who testified on October the 26th against Eli Perry under a cooperation agreement, wrapped Raymond Perry in a rug, loaded him onto a truck, and disposed of his body near an off-cape cranberry bog, Cape and Island's assistant District Attorney Michael Giordano said. After disposing of Raymond Perry's body, Eli Perry and Malone returned to the father's house and attempted to hide the evidence by painting the walls and laying new flooring, according to court records. Malone was forced by Eli Perry to hide evidence and dispose of Raymond Perry's body, she said. Raymond Perry was reported missing on December the 1st, 2017, but friends and family had not been in touch with him since November the 26th, 2017, according to court records. Several days later, on December 18th, 2017, investigators found Perry's body buried under a mulch pile near a cranberry bog at Old Forge Farm in Plymouth. His hands and feet were bound with zip ties, and he was covered with a rug that authorities determined came from his home in Mashpee. Eli Perry and Malone were later arrested and charged in February 2018. Superior Court Judge Mark Gildea told the jury closing arguments would commence Wednesday with the expectation for the jury to begin deliberation. Thursday. More news from Cape Cod. Brewster Town Meeting to Discuss Pond Management Watershed Permit, reported by Heather McCarran for the Cape Cod Times. Water quality is among the topics that will get attention at Brewster's upcoming special town meeting, including requests to fund a townwide pond management plan and associated pond pilot studies as well as funding to initiate creation of a Herring River watershed permit. The meeting, with 14 items on the agenda, convenes at 6 p.m. on November the 13th at Stony Brook Elementary School, 384 Underpass Road. 
Town Manager Peter Lombardi said the pond management plan listed among capital and special fund project requests is a recommendation of the town's Water Resource Task Force as a next step in implementing Brewster's Integrated Water Research Management Plan. Quote, we recognize that we need to focus on meeting our nitrogen mitigation requirements in the Pleasant Bay watershed. We also need to begin work developing a watershed permit for the Herring River watershed under the new DEP regulations. However, we want to be sure that we continue to focus our water quality planning efforts on our 80-plus ponds as well, Lombardi said. The pond management plan will identify principles and recommendations for protection and improvement of Brewster's freshwater ponds. A total of $100,000 is sought from free cash and water quality stabilization to fund the effort. Quote, the goals of the plan will be achieving water quality standards consistent with the desired use of the individual ponds through cost-effective management strategies that support healthy ecosystems and crucial habitat for biodiversity, Lombardo said. Several other Cape Towns have several plans in place, including Barnstable, Eastham, and Wellfleet, he said. The funding will also support demonstration projects at one or two ponds once the plan is complete, he said. Data from everything from algae, algae sampling, geographic information, how many houses are around each of the ponds, the storm drain locations, the history of cyanobacteria blooms, and more has been collected by various enterprises over the years, according to John Keith, vice president of the Brewster Ponds Coalition. He said part of the management plan will be compiling all the data in one place. Having a detailed profile of each pond will allow pond-specific plans to be developed to treat and protect them. Quote, there is no one-size-fits-all solution. Each pond's got a specific circumstances. What are its sources of pollutants? Does it have herring or not? Does it have bogs? So you need a pond study for each pond to determine how best to protect it, he said. The town is also requesting $50,000 to develop a Herring River watershed permit under the state's new watershed regulations for certain nitrogen-sensitive areas and updated Title V septic regulations. The first step is to identify future residential development potential within the watershed, which encompasses the neighborhoods around Long Pond, Sheep Pond, and Seymour Pond, to understand what the town's nitrogen mitigation requirements might be under the new permit. Find the full warrant online at www.tinyurl.com slash warrant. And Brewster TM Warrant is all one word. Hard copies will also be available at Town Hall, the Council on Aging, the Brewster Ladies Library, Ferretti's, Village Marketplace, Ace Hardware, Brewster General Store, and Cumberland Farms. 
The meeting, with 14 items on the agenda, convenes at 6 p.m. on November the 13th at Stony Brook Elementary School, 384 Underpass Road. A town meeting is both an event and an entity, according to the Secretary of Commonwealth's website. As an event, it is a gathering of a town's eligible voters and is referred to as the town meeting. As an entity, it is the legislative body for towns in Massachusetts and is referred to simply as town meeting. Thirteen of the 15 Cape Cod towns, including Yarmouth, have, quote, open town meetings, meaning all voters who live in that town may vote on all matters. Falmouth, though, has a representative town meeting where all voters select town meeting members who then vote on town meeting matters. The town of Barnstable is governed by an elected town council rather than by a town meeting. And for some national news reported in the Cape Cod Times, group estimates over 40K new jobs, clean energy projects in U.S. fuel industry growth, reported by Isabella O'Malley, for the Associated Press. A nonpartisan business group that advocates for clean energy estimated that 403,000 jobs will be created by the 20, 210 major energy projects announced since the Inflation Reduction Act took effect in mid-2022. At least $86 billion in investments have been announced, with the biggest job gains in ex expected in electric vehicles, battery storage, and solar energy sectors, said the report issued Wednesday by Environmental Entrepreneurs, E2. The I IRA, signed August 2022, contains $500 billion in new federal spending to lower health care costs increase tax revenues, and address climate change by, offer, change by offering incentives so clean tech companies innovate and manufacture in the U.S. Quote, we're in the biggest economic revolution we've seen in generations, thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act and other clean en energy policies, said E2 Executive Director Bob Keefe. The EV sector had the strongest response to the IRA and represents 58% of the investments when the projects were being announced. This, this sector is expected to support 185,700 jobs annually for five years. Battery storage is expected to support 48,000 jobs, and solar is expected to support 35,000, both annually for five years. New jobs indirectly related to the announced projects could include lumber mills, hiring more staff to handle growing demand for construction materials, and restaurants getting busier because construction workers at new faculties are starting to eat there. Form Energy is a company building multi-day batteries in Weirton, West Virginia, that committed to creating 750 permanent jobs at its factory by 2028. CEO Matteo Yaramillo 
said the company's ability to scale quickly is due to support from state and federal governments. Quote, we would not have Weirton without West Virginia, and we would not be going as fast as we're going without the IRA, Yaramillo said. Christopher Chung, CEO of Economic Development Partnership of North Carolina, a nonprofit public-private organization, said Carolina is one of the many states in the South seeking growing clean technology investment. Bipartisan legislation at the federal level has really juiced the pipelines of activity for us when it comes to economic development, especially attracting foreign direct investment, he said. Chung said many North Carolina community colleges partner with private companies to develop local training programs and job opportunities. Quote, as community colleges develop a rhythm for training the type of workers these companies need, that's going to enhance the appeal of our workforce and state as a business location to more and more of these clean energy companies, he said. Such a significant investment in climate action comes with hurdles to cross in the labor sector, experts say. Although investments in clean energy are on hyperdrive, other factors were supporting the clean energy labor before the IRA, said Joseph Kane, a research at the Brookings Institution nonprofit research organization. These factors include growing pressures to reduce planet warming gases, changing consumer behaviors, and clean technology becoming cheaper and more efficient. Kane said state and local leaders who receive funding for clean energy will have to be increasingly attentive to workforce development since some people aren't aware of these opportunities or don't have access to relevant training. Labor shortages in the clean energy sector, particularly in construction, manufacturing, and electrical work, are notable, said Thomas Kwan, Director of Sustainability Research at Schneider Electric, an energy management and industrial automation company. Kwan also said other circumstances could impact job creation include the permitting process for clean energy projects, which can be complex and lengthy, as well as critical minimal mineral supply chain issues. We're at about the middle of our broadcast, and so we turn to obituaries. There are two today. The first is for Betsy Lynn Welton from Sandwich. Betsy Lynn Welton, 78, of Sandwich, beloved mother and grandmother, interior designer, artist, and writer, passed away on October 23, 2023. Born in Waltham, Massachusetts, and longtime resident of Ketuit, Betsy brought beauty, style, and knowledge to the many lives she touched. Her interior design career spanned decades, starting in the mid-1970s through the early 2000s, and reached across the country and internationally. She was selected to participate in designer showhouses in Ketuit, Yarmouthport, Osterville, and Washington, D.C. As an author, Betsy wrote on a wide range of topics, including the history of the U.S. Botanical Garden, the treasures of the Cape, and tips for decorating a home, 
and was an active member of the Cape Cod Writers' Center, the National Press Club, and the National League of American Pen Women. Spreading her love of books, Betsy was the host of the longest continuing, continually running cable television show in America, Books and the World, for 10 years. Her watercolor art graces the walls of many as she was a prolific painter of Cape Cod life. Through her deep roots in the community, she participated on many committees and in activities including erecting statues to Mercy Otis Warren and Sachem Ianoff, many years of Independence Day celebrations throughout the town of Barnstable, and beautification efforts for Main Street in Hyannis. Betsy is survived by her daughters, Stacy Silva and Leslie Silva, her granddaughter, Alexandra Silver of Centerville, and half-brother Robert Welton of Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and many much-loved extended family. Betsy was predeceased by her parents, Kermit G. and Carolyn W. Welton, her husband, Ernest F. Silva, and her sister, Sandra W. Ron. A funeral will be held at Katuit Federated Church at 1 p.m. on Saturday, November the 4th, 2023. Burial will be in Mosswood Cemetery. For on, online guestbook and directions, visit www.chapmanfuneral.com. Our second obituary today is for Katerina Kathy C. Dikas, Wareham. On October 30th, 2023, Katerina passed away in her Wareham home at the age of 84. She was born in Wareham, Massachusetts, on July the 9th, 1939, the third of four children and the only daughter of George and Charles, Georgia and Charles Dekas. Her childhood made wonderful memories with the large extended family into which she was born. Many, many cousins, those living in the United States and those living in her parents' homeland of Greece, would come to visit and enjoy their time in the Dekas Yard and the beaches of Cape Cod. Katerina's home was always open, welcoming and spilling over with delicious homemade Greek food for family, friends, and visitors. She took pride in the generosity of her parents and the assistance they gave to so many relatives and friends. As a young girl working in her father's store on Wareham's Main Street, Katerina made friends with many townspeople. It also instilled in her a solid work ethic she would retain throughout her life. Her high school years were full of good friends and good times, whether she was cheerleading at basketball games or swooning over Elvis at dances. She was always proud of her Greek heritage, the language, the food, the culture, and especially the dance. She was a lifelong member of St. George Greek Orthodox Church community from its beginnings in New Bedford to its current location in North Dartmouth. On several occasions, Katerina traveled back to Greece with cousins and friends to gather with family members and celebrate all that she appreciated about the country. After graduating from Wareham High School, Katerina continued her education, graduating from Springfield College in 1963 with a Bachelor of Ed in Education, specializing in physical education. 
She immediately found employment with the town of Sharon, Massachusetts, public schools as the high school girl's physical education teacher. Charged with the task of developing more team sports for girls, Miss Dekas started the field hockey program in the fall, teaching both varsity and junior varsity teams, including lining the field herself at first, followed in the winter by coaching girls basketball. At that time, girls played the game with six players on the court. When the game transitioned to teams of five, Katerina put herself to work learning new strategies and techniques to make the girls' team competitive. Two years later, her team won the Hockamock League title. Spring season brought softball, and for her first five years at Sharon High, Katerina coached varsity and junior varsity levels of that sport, all the while teaching a full-day schedule of classes. While Katerina valued the students that could excel in athletics, she was also known to show understanding and empathy for those students for whom athletics did not come easy. She offered gems for gems of advice for life to her students and athletes that are remembered and quoted years later, the most often recalled being, don't panic, adjust. When Katerina retired from her position as high school PE teacher for the Sharon Public Schools in 20, 2002, 39 years after she started, thousands of women's girls and athletes could each tell their own Mystica story. In the year of her retirement, she was recognized at the Girls and Women in Sports Day celebration at Faneuil Hall, an event honoring female athletes on all levels. In 2014, Katerina was again honored by being inducted into the New Agenda Northeast Hall of Fame. That agency recognizes accomplishments in advancing the role of women in sports. After such a lengthy career in teaching, it was inevitable that when she would travel or attend gatherings, it didn't matter where, someone would approach her and tentatively ask, Miss Dekas? What followed were smiles and laughs. The names got harder to remember, but she enjoyed the memory of the conversation that would follow. Those were the intangible gifts of her life's work. Katerina was fortunate to live at a time when women could choose to prioritize their work and their careers. She also managed to keep her family at the center of her life. In the late 1990s, she stepped back from coaching field hockey to focus her attention on the care her mother needed. They made a great pair, and while Georgia may not have understood the level of dedication Katerina gave to her career, there was no mother prouder of her daughter, nor more grateful for the care she received from her. Katerina's new career as caregiver was extended to include her brother George, for whom she spent over 10 years giving care and supervision as he slowly slipped away and succumbed to Alzheimer's disease. She took on George's interest in historical preservation, and together they oversaw the renovation and preservation of the Bessie House in Wareham's Historical District, as well as ensuring that his collections of historical items got appropriately ca taken care of upon his passing. Her brother Bill's health began to decline. They were good companions in their childhood home, sharing a passion for watching good football games and old movies until his passing in June of this year.
Katerina took much pride in the success of all her brothers, George and Bill as lawyers, and John as former CEO of the various Dicas Cranberry Enterprises their father helped build. Katerina <clears throat> is survived by her brother, John C. Dicas, a nephew, Dean J. Dicas, both of Wareham, niece Alexandra Levy and husband Eric, grandniece Lucy of Los Angeles, California, and many, many cousins and friends. She was preceded in death by her parents, Charles and Georgia Dicas, husbands, nephews, excuse me, nephews, Harry J. and Joseph J. Dicas, sister-in-law, Beverly Dicas, whose husband is John, and brothers George C. and William C., all of Wareham. Katerina would want family and friends to extend sincere thanks to those who gave her support and care during her illness, her older brother John, her niece Alexandra, Father Peter Lena Weaver, Sheila White, Laureen Dicas, Norman Beauregard, Derek Labolita, Ann Kyle, and Peggy Arguimbo. Special gratitude to caregivers Maria Costa, Chantal Leon, and the nurses and staff of Community Nurses Hospice Association. Visiting hours will be at Chapman Funerals and Cremations, 2599 Cranberry Highway, Route 28, Wareham, on Sunday, November the 5th, 2023, from 4 to 7 p.m. A funeral service will be held on Monday, November 6th, 2023 at St. George Greek Orthodox Church, 186 Cross Street, North Dartmouth, Mass., at 10 a.m. Interment will follow at Center Cemetery, Wareham. All are welcome to attend and celebrate Katerina's life. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made to Onset Bay Association, Post Office Box 799, Onset, Massachusetts, 02558. Please designate Fireworks Fund in the memo field. For directions or to leave a message of condolence, visit www.chapmanfuneral.com. More national news from the Cape Cod Times. Possible motives in Maine mass shooting revealed. Reported by Christopher Kahn for the USA Today. The man who killed 18 people in a shooting spree in Maine last week believed local businesses, including the bowling alley and the bar he rampaged, were involved in a conspiracy broadcasting messages online saying he was a pedophile, records say. The arrest warrant, released Tuesday, reveals possible motives of Robert Card, an Army reservist who police say carried out the state's deadliest mass shooting. The records also detail statements by the 40-year-old's family about his poor mental health and a breakup with someone Card had met at the bar he later targeted. In the evening of October 25th, Card opened fire on patrons and workers at Just-In-Time Recreation Bowling Alley and Schmidt. Shemengi's Bar and Grill in Lewiston, Maine. 
He killed 18 people and wounded over a dozen others, and the ensuing manhunt closed schools and businesses and kept thousands of people across southern Maine huddled in their homes. Card's body was found two days after the shooting inside a recycling center trailer. He died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound, police said. A family member, whose name was redacted in the warrant, said Card went through a bad breakup in February with a woman he met at Shemengi's Bar and Grill, and he had been delusional ever since, the warrant said. After the breakup, Card had significant weight loss, has been hospitalized for mental health issues, and prescribed medication that he stopped taking, family members told police. Card started wearing hearing aids and had been saying crazy things, including that there was a conspiracy against him and people were accusing him of being a pedophile, the report said. Along with the Lewiston Bar and Bowling Alley, Card believed a market and a nightclub were also broadcasting online the accusatory message. Police in their arrest warrant wrote that Card believed his family was involved in the conspiracy too. Card met the person who would eventually break up with him during a cornhole competition at Chemengi's Bar and Grill, the warrant said. On the evening he fatally shot eight people there, the bar was hosting a cornhole competition that was attended by members of the local deaf community. Records released earlier this week by the Sagadoc County Sheriff's Office contain repeated warnings about Card's deteriorating mental condition and a first-hand account of him threatening to count to commit a mass shooting. In May, Card's ex-wife and son contacted the sheriff's office and told a deputy that Card was drinking heavily and acting paranoid and had picked up 10 to 15 handguns and rifles from his brother's house. Two months later, Card was taken by police to a psychiatric hospital and received two weeks of treatment after his fellow reservists reported he was hearing voices calling him a pedophile and other insults at a training event in West Point, New York. Card's superiors banned him from handling firearms and ammunition at his home reserve base in Maine and tried to persuade him to retire from the reserve and seek psychiatric help. There's a two-page color spread in the middle of today's paper uh, about the the weekend before Thanksgiving celebration held in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And I just wanted to read to you the schedule of events. This is taking place on November 17th, 18th, and 19th. On Friday, November 17th, the Plymouth Philharmonic are playing Baroque and Beyond, and the tickets are at www.usathanksgiving.com slash concert dash series, and there's a VIP event for sponsors. On Saturday, November 18th, opening ceremonies at 9 a.m. at Plymouth Rock. There's a Thanksgiving parade at 10 a.m. at Plymouth at Plymouth Rock, and it continues on Main Street to Court Street. Water act, waterfront activities on Saturday, November the 18th, continue from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. 
and the activities include a craft beer and wine garden, a food truck alley, children's pavilion, and a portal to the past reenactment village. And then there will be the National Drum and Bugle Corps concert at 6.30 p.m. in Memorial Hall. And doors open at 5.30 p.m. and tickets can be gotten at www.usathanksgiving.com slash concert dash series. And then on Sunday, November the 19th, there will be a Harvest Market, market 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Locally grown, fresh from the farm, fruits, vegetables, herbs, preserves, eggs, grass-fed meats, and mushrooms will be available. Another article from the Cape Cod Times, UMass study examines impact of short-term rentals, reported by Zane Razak for the Cape Cod Times. The median condominium price in Provincetown would have to fall by as much as 70% to be affordable for someone earning the area median income. The revelation is included in a review of short-term rental regulations and implications for Provincetown, prepared by the University of Massachusetts Donahue Institute Economic and Public Policy Research Group. Assistant Town Manager Dan Rivello called it one of the more harrowing findings. Quote, that really showed us that we're going to have to do a lot of work to not only try to increase the number of year-round rentals, but we're going to have to put some money behind building more units so there's a greater supply that people will have access to that are below what the real estate market would call for, said Rivello on Wednesday. Last year, the town had been discussing with the select board the need to do a study to understand the impact of short-term rentals in town. Then, during the annual town meeting in April, some citizen petitions were brought forward about short-term rentals. Riviello said that it showed that there was disagreement and some misunderstanding from the public about how short-term rentals impact the town, further underlining the need for the study. The report found that Provincetown is unique because short-term rentals are likely to be captured as vacation homes that sit vacant or are used by family and friends rather than being rented out because demand for vacation homes is so high. Thus, the evidence gathered at this study suggests that any STR regulation is unlikely to reduce home prices or rents to an affordable level to residents or to induce owners of vacation homes to stop using the homes themselves and instead rent them out to local workers, reads the report. Instead, the work needed to accomplish those goals is beyond the scope of regulations the Donahue team examined, the report stated. The report has been received well, according to Riviello, who said it's been useful in providing a set of facts residents and town officials can point to and, quote, for the most part, agree on, close quote. He also said it has dispelled a myth that homes are either short-term rentals or year-round rentals, when actually most properties in town are seasonal homes that are sometimes used as short-term rentals for a small amount of time. 
quote, it's kind of always been the case in Provincetown that it's a very desirable place to have a second home, and people short-term rent that second home for some period of time sometimes, but it's not as if having the ability to short-term rent, it would then have that go to a year-round rental, said Riviello. After getting some primary findings, the town worked with its housing groups over the summer and early fall to try to bring some consensus measures to a town, a special town meeting in October, where they could start to regulate short-term rentals. Voters overwhelmingly voted to put regulations in place that ban corporations from being able to get short-term rental certificates and limit the number of short-term rental certificates that any person can have. Quote, we became the first town on Cape Cod to actually create any sort of short-term rental regulations in our town bylaws, said Riviello. Quote, these will go into effect as soon as the Attorney General reviews and approves of them, which we think will happen in probably the next 60 to 90 days, close quote. The report also highlighted the amount of income that someone can generate from a short-term rental during the season versus what they can from a year-round market rate rental, with the gap only about $12,000. Riviello said information that said that information has encouraged the town to examine incentives it can use to persuade people to switch from a short-term rental to a year-round rental, potentially opening up some houses that would otherwise sit vacant. Quote, there's this misconception out there that you can make so much more money on a short-term rental than you can on a year-round rental, that it's going to be tens of thousands of dollars and there's no way we could try to close that gap, says Riviello. If we see that it's really 10000 to $12,000, that's something we can work with. That's all we have time for today. This is Daphne, and I've enjoyed reading to you. Have a lovely weekend. Stay warm. <laughs>